final week in our series on uh, unity, and I'm excited about this week because it's number one, it's one of my favorite passages um, of Scripture in the New Testament. Um, but also we're going to be talking about reverse engineering, which I get real excited about. Um, reverse engineering is this process where you start with the end result um, and you kind of work backwards from the end result to establish not only the process by which something happens, but hopefully all the way back to like a first step um, in something. So if you're looking at, say, a product, you have a certain product and, and you want to reverse engineer so that you can manufacture a version of it. Um, yourself, you'd start with the finished product and then you would start to disassemble it um, down to its parts and hopefully by the time you're done um, you, you've not only looked at every part that's in this finished product, um, but you can actually know what it's going to take and, and even start ordering parts to make your own if you wanted. Um, it works in computer systems and code coding. Um, a lot of times they'll already have like an established code, we know this thing works, when you plug in the data it does this, but you really don't know how it works until you start with the finished code and work backwards until you know everything that goes into it. Um, which is important. Esther and I actually do this with our goal setting. Uh, rather than looking at our lives and trying to figure out what we should do with it, we go 20 years down the road and we dream a little bit crazy and, uh, uh, you know, realistic, you know, I want to be president in 20 years, no, that's not, but, you know, realistic, but a little crazy, like what do we want our lives to look like? Um, in 20 years, and then we say, okay, if that's where we want to be in 20 years, where would we have to be in 10? Like, where would our lives have to be in 10 years if we really have a dream of getting there in 20 years? If that's the case, where would we have to be in five? And if we want to be there in five years, where do we have to be at this time next year? And if we want to be there at this time next year, what do I have to do tomorrow? Like, and, and you walk it all the way back. Anytime I've ever lost weight, it's when we're reverse engineering. And it's like, what do we want to be in 20 years? And that's like, I hope you're alive. I'm like, oh, but then I should probably change my diet tomorrow. Because, I mean, I want to be alive in 20 years. Some things should probably change. Um, and, you, you you know, you walk it back. I mean, just all the details, you know, of what you want to be in 20 years, you can walk it back to what do I have to do tomorrow to, to start to work for that reality. And that's reverse engineering. Start with the end result. Work backwards. I want you to have a you know, picture. Um, you can do that. Uh, but... This verse today, I feel like, has some really cool reverse uh, engineering in it. Um, and so what we're going to do is, is uh, we're going to start in this verse. Last week I told you we were kind of taking, we've been taking the kind of 30,000 foot view of this topic of unity and, uh, and looking down from kind of a theological high vantage point at, at what the Bible says about unity. And now we've kind of come back in to what that means to us. And so that's where we're going to definitely be today on something way more practical. So uh, we're going to be reading in Ephesians 4, if you want to follow along in your own Bible or app. If not, the words will be behind me or if you're online with us. Um, which, by the way, hey, old fam, I see you guys out there. Um, I'm glad you guys are there. Um, yep, I see more and more people jumping in. Um, awesome. Hey, Dave's in Topeka. What's up, Dave? Good to see you. Got close. Um, Dave comes in and has church with us whenever he uh, is in the area, but almost got here. But um, anyway, if you're online, the words will be right in the middle of your screen. This is Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. Um, for there, or not in verse 1, I forget where we're starting. We're starting there somewhere. For there is one body and one spirit, uh, just as you have been called to one glorious hope of the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. This is what the scripture says. He ascended to the heights. He led crowds of captives and gave gifts to people. Notice that he says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended in the lower 
lowly world and the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now there are gifts Christ gives to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that he will, we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown away by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the holy of his body, the church. He made the whole world fit together perfectly. Each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This is the word of the Lord. Um, what I love most about this verse is um, the way that it starts with the way things are. Like it, it doesn't. It, it starts with the absolute truth. It says this: For there is one body, one spirit, just as we have been called to one glorious hope of the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and in all and living through all. That is what. It, that is what is. That is the. That is the fact of the matter. That's what God sees. What's real? That there's not 30, there may be 38,000 denominations um, in Christianity, but there simply is not 38,000 churches, 38,000 bodies of Christ. God does not see it that way. We may see it that way. God does not see it that way. That is not the way it actually is. There, there is one church. Period. There is only one church. However, we look at it, there is only one church. And that's where Paul starts. Paul says, "There's one body." One Spirit, one God, one faith. Only one, period. One Holy Spirit, one Jesus, one heaven, one baptism, which is the church's, easy, the church's way of saying one way to get saved. There's one salvation. Uh, only one, period. That's what is. That there is only one. That's the, that's, the, that's the way it is. No matter how else we look at it, no matter what else you say, no matter how else we act on a daily basis or every given Sunday, there is only one. So we're starting with the final product, let's say. Let's say we want to reverse engineer this. The final product is one church. That's what is. That, that's what we have. And we're going to reverse engineer that. Um, so if this was a, a system or if oneness, if unity was our product, you know, uh, and, and we know the product works because Paul said this is what is. This, is. this is the way God sees it. We know we have a working product. Um, for us to understand it, we have to know what's inside and how we break that down and how that how that works. So we're going to reverse engineer that a little bit, right? Because we know it's functioning because God says this is the way it is. So Paul starts to take it apart a little bit and, and to look inside this finished product. He starts with the finished product. There's only one. And then he starts to kind of get inside of it a little bit. However, he's given each of us a special gift, the generosity of Christ. So this is now he's starting to say, inside of that oneness, there's some systems. There's some parts. And we're going to break that out. And verses 8 to 10 is kind of a bunny trail Paul goes on, which I totally respect. Um, uh, to, but it kind of creates a theological sand trap. And if we, if we got in that, we may not get out by the Chiefs game. So we're going to, I'm going to take a mulligan and pick up on the other side of the sand trap. Um, so don't feel like I'm here. Please go home and read it and, and meditate on it. It's, it's deep. But, um, 
But if we go there today, we won't get out. So don't get mad at me. I'm, I'm skipping a few verses. Um, and he picks up in verse 11. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Um, this is a, a, Paul makes this kind of bold declaration at the beginning. There's only one church serving one God, preaching one baptism. So the secular metaphor, this is our product, that oneness. Well, let's say it's a vacuum. Let's say we're working with a vacuum. We have a working vacuum. Um, the single vacuum is, it works. It picks things up off the floor. We know it works. We want to know how it works, why it works, what, what's going on in this one vacuum. Um, and so we break it into its systems. You've got a motor, you have a canister, um, you have some kind of suction device, whether it's a hose, if it's a shop vac, or a beater bar, if it's a, a you know. So you get different systems inside this this vacuum. Made up of many, and each system is made up of multiple parts. Dale's like drooling. This is what Dale does. Like he, he he's like, I can tell you the parts. Like, uh, um, but uh, so similar to this, Paul's like, there's only one church, a single faith. There isn't multiple. Uh, but at the same time, they're not all the same. Um, you know, Jesus gave a lot of different roles and different gifts. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Um, and we currently call this the fivefold ministry. Like when you talk about this passage, we call it the fivefold ministry uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Or we call them the functional or functionary offices of the church. Meaning these aren't like positions in the church as much as um, you, you, you serve because you're functional in this gift. So, um, so they don't really have like, you don't hire an apostle. It's just somebody in the church kind of serves as uh, the vision caster, you know, uh, for the for the church or, or whatever. So, although my contemporary title that we use is pastor, you know, we, we typically call the person who serves in my role a pastor, but the actual biblical office would be an elder or an overseer. Like, those are people that they like... In the book of Acts, they said, and, and Paul placed elders in every church. He never says he hired a single pastor or put a single pastor in a church. That's just the word we've kind of come up with um, to shape the gifting to the office. But really, the office is overseer or elder um, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, where, where Paul tells Timothy to assign elders and overseers in these churches. Um, but that's just semantics, you know. But technically, I'm an elder who functions in the role of pastoring and teaching. Um, so when I'm up here, I'm studying and I'm, 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 I'm kind of guiding us through some teachings in Scripture. I'm serving in a teaching capacity. So I'm an elder who is also teaching. Um, when I'm calling people, texting people, loving on people, comforting people, often, sometimes confronting people, whatever, then I'm an elder serving in a pastoral capacity. I'm, I'm being a pastor, um, and which just means a shepherd or um, a minister uh, in, in that moment. And as a, like the kind of church planter and kind of primary visionary. I guess I would serve a little bit in an apostolic role for this particular um, thing, but my official job, if you want to use a New Testament word, would be an elder. I'm an elder um, or an overseer of the church, but governance is not really what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with these functionary offices, these these, these kind of particular giftings that exist in the church, uh, you know, kind of throughout the body. Um, what Paul seems to be recognizing here is the fact that um, it requires diversity. This finished product requires a diversity um, of giftings. Uh, we've been saying this since we started this series. Unity does not mean uniformity any more than a vacuum is made up of five motors. You know, five motors does not make a vacuum. You need the diversity in order for the, the final product um, to work. Unity cannot happen 
if there's not diversity. So Paul, after separating out these systems, he you know, kind of breaks it down. There's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, these kind of different systems that function inside this unity. Um, he breaks it down even farther uh, from that. He says their responsibility, um, so what they actually do, um, is to equip God's people to do the work and build up the church, the body of Christ. One of my favorite verses, um, and it's actually quoted all the time, that, that the, the, the church leaders exist to build up the body to do the work. Um, uh, in fact, my understanding of church, really, like Sunday morning church service, really comes from this passage. Because um, there's really two ways that we kind of approach church, like Sunday morning church and what it's about and what it does. One is that this is the place, the space that we create to do the ministry. And so the goal is to bring in as many unsafe people as we can in here, and we preach to them, and the, the pastor does the work of ministry to try and reach the lost. And so really, the only job the church has is to drag people in, you know, and then your job is done, and it's the, the professional's job to do ministry. That's, that's kind of one way of looking at it. Um, the other way uh, is that, is, which I get from this verse, is that this is the space where the people of God gather to be encouraged and built up and strengthened and loved on and healed so that they can go out and do ministry. You build up the church so the church can go out and do ministry um, out in the world. And what we generally wind up with is this weird hybrid um, where we sing Christian songs and we speak Christianese, and we, but we also kind of do it chill so that unsaved people are comfortable. You know, we kind of get stuck in that middle where we're trying to be inviting and yet we still totally act you know, so we get stuck in this middle ground, and, and so here we tend to, to, to go off of Paul's words here. This is where the church gathers to get built up and strengthened to go out and do ministry. And uh, uh, so I, technically, I don't do the ministry. You guys do the ministry. I, I work to try and strengthen the church to go out and do ministry. Um, as, as well as the other functionary gifts and callings in the church. And we get together so that we can love each other, minister to each other, and speak into each other's lives, and, and, uh, and, and then send each other out to go do ministry in the world. Um, which really calls into question, what is the ministry? It, that, that's a big question that gets hanging here. What we typically consider to be the ministry doesn't fit the way Paul says ministry is. Ministry is something that happens out there. So it, it leaves the question, okay, well, if the only reason we come in here is to get strengthened and built up so that we can go out and do ministry, then what in the world is ministry? And I have no intention of answering that question this morning because it doesn't fit our sermon. So that's just for you to chew on um, when you go home. But does it challenge your understanding of ministry and what you think ministry is? Um, that's just for you. Um, but today's study, we're going to stick to our point. Paul has stated that there's only one church serving one God, administering one baptism, um, but that that oneness is broken into different systems, different um, uh, ways of, of, of serving this one thing. Uh, the system to build up millions and millions of people, but for what ultimate purpose? Like, that's the big question. We know that this oneness exists. We know that all these people, um, you know, have different gifts to, to, to serve this oneness. Uh, and this is the part that isn't quoted nearly as often as the fivefold ministry part. Every teacher, every staff meeting, every you know, everything within the church is based on, you know, that we build up the body of Christ to do the work of ministry. Like that's a huge verse you hear quoted all the time. Nobody quotes the next verse. I've actually only heard it quoted by one guy, you know, 
the next verse, saying you cannot have this verse if you don't have the next verse, um, which is interesting. So um, most guys ignore this. It says, this will continue until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up the full and complete standard of Christ. And this is where this passage gets awesome. So Paul tells us the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are here to build up the body to do the work of ministry for the ultimate purpose of bringing the church into unity. That's the final goal. This is going to continue. We're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to work until we finally reach unity. Paul says this will continue until we come to such unity of the faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. We talked a few weeks ago when we were going through 1 Corinthians about the way that Paul um, kind of makes it very clear that the fact that they were divided um, based on kind of their favorite celebrity pastor and their uh, whoever was preaching their kind of favorite flavor of theology, um, that the fact that they were dividing over that meant that they were not mature. Like he said that pretty in fact, I think it's worth reading again. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. Uh, I had to talk to you as though you belonged to the world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. Those are strong words. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you're controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living as people of the world? When you say, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, aren't you acting like people of the world? Like, that's pretty strong language. He's like, when you get all divided up, aren't you proving you're immature? Like, that's, that's pretty hard. So this is the second time, both in First Corinthians and now in Ephesians, where Paul equates unity and love to maturity. Um, in both books, he says this entire fivefold ministry, the, the, the entire kind of ministerial giftings within the church are designed to work toward unity, which is a very different picture than we generally see. Uh, in the world. Far too often the leadership of the church spends an inordinate amount of time laying out a very specific and narrow approach to theology um, that equips the people on how to defend their particular flavor uh, against all the other flavors and, uh, and, and, then, uh, and then we wall ourselves off with this kind of spirit of defending what we already believe. Uh, and, and the better you defend your ideas, the generally the, the, the people who are the best at defending their flavor are the most mature. That's usually how we mark maturity. Like those guys who are ready with an answer anytime somebody brings a different idea to them and they can rattle off the scripture to defend their flavor, those are the real mature guys. Paul says it's the other way. Paul says, no, 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 that, that is the perfect sign of immaturity. When you're not able to, to, to fight for unity and, and, and work to bring everybody into unity, then you're not mature yet. Paul said, I still have to talk to you like a baby because you're not ready yet. Um, which is very strange compared to the way that, that we generally think of, of theology. But Paul says here in Ephesians, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Paul says the whole end goal um, of ministry is maturity in Christ which doesn't happen until we come into unity. Um, this verse has a lot to do with why I have been labored this point for four or five weeks now, um, is because it, 
The goal is to be more like Christ. That is our, that's why we do what we do, is to grow more and more like Christ. And Paul says, this is how that happens. We continue to work, continue to build up the body, continue to, to use our gifts until we come into such unity that we can finally reach maturity and start to actually look like Jesus. Because believe me, I don't preach unity because I like it. This is not that's this is not my personality. This is something I'm convicted by the scripture. I love to fight. Like I love MMA because I love to fight. I love to watch guys punch each other because because I like that tension. Um, in fact, one of the most one of the most effective like ministries I've ever had was a fight club. Like it, it was uh, my son had some guys at school he was trying to reach and they didn't really want to do youth group and he was convicted for their souls. And he, was, and he came to me one day and was like, um, if I start a fight club, would you teach the guys a little Bible study? And I was like, you're going to have to explain that sentence. <laughs> I don't even know what you just said. He was like, I want to get the guys together to fight and just and teach. I've got some friends that don't know how to even throw a punch. I want to teach them how to punch. And, and, but I want it to be a God thing. And so I was like, yeah. So we started in my backyard. And, uh, and you know, eight or ten guys showed up. I taught them a little Bible study, um, and they all listened real well. We prayed, and then we punched each other. Like, and that's what we did. Uh, it started with, okay, we're going to learn how to, and I bought gloves and wrist wraps and, and headgear, um, which they didn't like using the headgear nearly enough, which, so I spent every day like, oh, God, please don't let anybody get hurt. And, and the first guy that got hurt, he gets a big gash in his eye, and I'm like, that's it. I'm going, and I'm getting sued. They're taking everything. And I, I went to his parents with him, and I was like, I'm so sorry. And they were like, this is awesome. I can't believe this happened. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, he never rode a bike or a skateboard. He has never been hurt because he's afraid of everything. I cannot believe he went and let somebody punch him until he bled. This is amazing. They were excited, so I was excited. Anyway, within a few, so it, it kind of out through my backyard. The weather was changing, and there was, there was one night a week that nobody was at the church we were at the time. And so, like... I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club, but it was almost that secretive. Like, we just, we didn't ask, because we knew if we asked, it would involve the insurance. So we just, I had a key, so we just went up and had Fight Club. By the end of it, we had like 30 teenage boys showing up, and they would all sit for the Bible study quietly and, uh, and ask questions, and we would talk, and then we would get up and fight. We had like three guys knocked out cold. We had, and we were... We were all a carpet similar to this. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club, but there's a point where they're all, like, beat up and bruised. And you're walking down the street, and you see another guy with a black eye, and you're like, yeah, we know. You know, they, and because we were on carpet, all the guys had these wicked rug burns all over their elbows. And they said they'd be walking through school, and they'd see each other's rug burns. They were like, we know where we got it. <laughs> anyway, I have no idea what that is. Not in my, none of that's in my notes. Um... <laughs> But I like fighting. It was exciting to us. Like, we had a blast talking about the Bible. And then, you know, and, uh, and it was a crazy encouraging act. I don't want you to think we just, like, Argh. like, it was nothing like the movie. Like, our first rule was this has to be a 100% encouraging space. There's no making fun of anybody at all. Not even the stuff we would normally do. Because, you know, somebody can tease you and you can laugh and have fun. But when they tease you while they're punching you, that's a whole different environment. Like, so it had to be nothing but encouraging. And they were awesome at it. Like, somebody came in and they hit like this. Like, nobody made fun of them. They were like, no, let's put your shoulder behind it. Like, they would show them how to do it. They'd work with them. And it was, it was a neat environment. <laughs> I can't get on. What am I doing? Um, but, uh, 
I like to fight. I like identifying the people whose theology is wrong and wanting to debate with them and challenge them. And, ah, like I used to, I used to spend, and the hard thing was, I used to be so into this, I didn't have a team. Because my, my whole game was trying to find whatever in your theology was off. So that's what I could attack. Like it, if, if we agreed on 95% of the things, I went for the 5%. Like that's, I don't want to stand here with somebody I agree with. I want to find something I don't agree with so we can debate and argue. And that was, that was me. And so usually I didn't have a team. I was just known as the guy who's going to be the devil's advocate. Wherever he goes, he's going to fight about something. And uh, it was kind of sick, really. I didn't lay that down because I was bored of fighting. I, I love a good challenge. I love a good argument. I love a good debate. I never get bored of fighting. I laid it down because I felt like the Bible told me to. I did it because I, like, I got convicted by Scripture that this is not what maturity looks like. It had nothing to do with the fact that I don't like fighting. I love it. And then like anything else that the Bible convicts you of, I wasn't able to do it for a long time. Like, I was convicted, but I was like, oh, that can't be right. And then the Holy Spirit, the way the Holy Spirit gen- gently convicts, also eventually began to empower me to do it. But by the time I was starting to do it, it felt like I was doing it because the Holy Spirit was giving me the strength to finally obey what I felt convicted by. Well, this is the idea Paul lays out for the fivefold ministry, working to serve unity. And then he unpacks it some more. He says, then... We will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed, blown by every wind of new teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the church, or the head of the body, his church. Uh, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. And each part does its own special work and helps all the other parts grow so the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This is the dream. That sounds beautiful. Like all of us, different, like totally different drives and passions, and, and, but our bent is on helping one another also grow. Like that is, a, that is a beautiful picture for me. Each part doing what it's called to do. Gifted in such a way that it's good for everyone makes every congregation, every denomination, every individual church member work together for one end. So that each functional part or a part of the same team and the entire thing, this shining light to the world of the way that we're supposed to function. Because Jesus said, when we do that, that's how the world will know you're different. That's how the world will know you're my disciples is when you actually start to function like this. But here's what I think is so fun about this passage. What Paul does here in the very beginning is he says, this is the way it is. There's only one church, only one God, only one faith, only one baptism, one shining light, one heaven. So Jesus sends these gifts into the church so that they can grow and equip little by little until they actually start to live that way. So it's like he says, this is what is, but it's actually not what is. So you have to get there. Like it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a dichotomy where he's like, there's only one church. You aren't ma- we are not making the church unified. This is not a theology of effort. There's nothing we can do to make the church more unified than it is. There is only one church. Paul says that at the beginning. Like you don't, we're, there's nothing we can do to work toward unity. The unity already is. Paul says there's only one church. Like you may look out there and see something different, but there's only one church. You cannot make one more oneness. 
Like you can't. There's only one. Like he says it the way it actually is. He gives us the truth. There's only one church, period. You don't create that. It just is. It already is. But we can either embrace that truth, believing that the truth will set us free, or we can deny that truth. Like, that's all we're doing. We're not making the church more unified last time. We either believe and have faith in what God's Word says, that there's only one church, or we deny the truth and don't have faith. That's ultimately what this says. Either believe or don't believe. The entire passage is about bringing ourselves in line with what already is, which really is usually the whole faith journey. That's really what faith is about. When, when we don't believe in God, when we don't believe in God is real, atheists aren't changing God at all. Like, nothing changes in God when somebody chooses not to believe in Him. I mean, Paul goes so far as to say that we all believe in God, we just choose not to glorify Him as God. But we don't change anything about God when that happens. We can either bring ourselves in reality, like in alignment with the truth, or we don't. Like, and nothing really changes in the, in the truth. When we don't believe in God is real, He's still just as real. We're just not choosing to have faith in that reality. When we put our faith in Jesus, God, the, the Scripture says that we are granted the very righteousness of Christ when we put our faith in Him. The rest of our faith journey is living, is learning to live as though that's true. Like, it's learning to bring ourselves in alignment with what already is. When the world seems to be falling apart around us and just burning to the ground and everything is absolutely crazy, God says, I have everything under control. I am sovereign. Nothing happens outside of my, my knowledge. Like, none of this is a surprise to me. We can either learn to live as though that's true, because it's true. That doesn't mean we have to acknowledge that truth. We can live as though the truth is not true and freak out and panic and live in fear. Or we can choose to align ourselves with what is, that God is sovereign and He is in control. And that will change the way we approach the world. So, so what's funny is we have this idea that we create things. We cre- you know, No, God is... God has said what is. Our job is to live as though it's true. Have faith in it. This is where the life of faith becomes a life of faith. You're like, I'm choosing to believe what God says is, is true. It's the same way with unity. We don't create unity. We don't make unity. We don't work to, to bring back together a divided church. There is no divided church. This is not a theology of effort, though it does feel really hard sometimes. It's not a theology of effort. Paul said at the beginning of this, there's only one church. There's only one God, one faith, one baptism, period. What we do is try to believe that. That's our job, is to try to believe that. Our job is to live in accordance with the way things really are. So how do we do that? How do we start to do that? When Paul says there's only one Father, one Jesus, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, one church, but we look around and it doesn't look that way, none of the data seems to fit the, the, the final analysis kind of like looking at a, at a pile of parts and somebody goes, that's a vacuum. You're like, that's not a vacuum. I've seen a vacuum. That will pick up nothing. That's just a pile, you know. How do we live in, in, in the unity that is? The unity that already is. How do we live in that? And this is why I, the idea of reverse engineering popped in my head and why I love it so much is, is because of what Paul does here. Actually, just before the passage we read today, Paul opens this whole passage like this. He says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. 
If you've been called by God, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And then he goes in, there's only one God, one faith, one. Therefore, I, a person of Paul, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. When you reverse engineer your life, you always walk it back all the way to something you can do tomorrow. What can I do tomorrow? The end goal is 20 years down the road. I can spend my life going, this is what I want to be when I grow up, this is what I want to be. And that's right. I actually don't go 20 years out anymore. We're reaching that age for 20 years. Maybe too far. So we're bringing it back a little bit. But when we started, it was always 20 years. But, uh, but you always want to walk it back to what, what do I do when I wake up tomorrow? Otherwise, this, this goal, this vision, this dream does me no good. It, it doesn't shape what I do tomorrow. And unity is no different. Paul in this chapter talks about this lofty reality that God created in Christ a true unity, a true single church. He talks about the systems that are in place to make that happen. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teachers to, to build us up so we can actually get there. And then he breaks it all the way down to what you can do today. What can you do? What can I do? What can we do today to live in accordance with this? And believe it or not, I'm actually quite legalistic. I'm, I'm kind of a, a rule follower, like a legalist, which tends to make people suspicious because I don't look like a typical <laughs> legalist. I, but I do. I confess and repent all the time because I, I mess up a lot. Some people have a hard time believing I'm a legalist because I like to have an adult beverage and on occasion use adult words. On frequent occasions, I use adult words. And the American Christian culture doesn't tend to do that. And I like to watch TV shows that a lot of people don't necessarily approve of. And I read books, and I think Eminem is a lyrical genius. And that bothers a lot of people. And I don't like Caleb. That's always a mark against me. Because usually the typical American kind of Christian behavioralism is don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't gamble, don't dance. You know, don't, like, we don't do those things. But to me, those are too easy. And they're really not even that biblical. But this list, always be humble and gentle. Be patient. Make allowances for one another's faults. Otherwise known as grace. Make every effort to live in unity. Live at peace. Those are hard. That's a hard list. And I fail all the time. But, I, but I'm a behavioralist. I, I try really hard to live the way the Bible tells me to live. And that's what my list looks like. If you ever look at my life and you hear me use four-letter words and listen to me talk about books and TV shows that I like, and you wonder, first, how on earth did you ever become a pastor? Because that question comes up a lot. And second, you wonder if Jesus has had any effect on my life at all. Because I don't seem very Christian to some people. And please know that it's not because I'm not trying really, really hard to live like Jesus every single day. I actually judge myself very harshly. I try not to judge other people, but I actually do hold myself to a very, very high standard. But I think we sometimes have a different definition of what the Christian life looks like. Against my sinful nature that wants to drive me all the time, I try to be humble. I try to be gentle and patient and graceful and united with people that I really want to fight with. 
And I tried really hard to somehow find peace in this chaotic world. And I mess that up every day. And I repent and I wake up and I try again. I'm the kind of person where when I feel my peace going away, I get mad at myself. I'm like, man, I'm not living according to Scripture. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. My peace is going. Ah, God, please forgive me. I know you're sovereign. And I get back up because of His grace and I try again. I drank beer and used cuss words when Esther and I got married. It drove Esther nuts, to be honest. She did not like it. She was not brought up that way. She didn't get it. And I love to argue about why I could do those things. Like, you're trying to prove it biblically where this is wrong. Like, I, would, I was raring for a fight any, any chance I got. Because I also had no humility and no gentleness whatsoever. I had no patience, no allowance for anyone else's opinions let alone their faults. We've been married almost 30 years now, and I, I challenge you to text her face mess, face, Facebook message Esther. She hates it when I say things like that. And, uh, and ask her, if you had a choice, would you rather Chris, Chris not drink adult drinks and use spicy language, or would you rather him be more humble and gentle and patient? If she's honest, she would say, He's still got a long way to go on his Ephesians 4 list. He's still got got some distance to travel. As long as he's trying to live that way, who cares about the other stuff? She lived with the the unhumble, ungentle, unpatient Chris. I think Jesus feels the same way. Paul tells us what is. There's only one church. He tells us the entire church is like local church's job is to, is to build everybody up until they can come into that reality of what is. So they can actually believe it. And that's the, that's the truth. But can we believe it? What the Bible says is true. And then he tells us, personally, you, me, how to do it. In our daily lives. So how do we respond to this? That's when I recently um, read this study of this psychologist who was observing babies in an orphanage. This is years ago. I want to say the early to mid-20th century. Um, there was an earthquake in California, so there was a lot of people died. There was an inordinate number of babies in the orphanages. And, and he went to kind of observe as a psych study. Because back then, there was, you were allowed to do that, which is super creepy. But, um, but he was just there, like, taking notes on, let's see what this weird situation does to these humans. <laughs> That's terrible. But... Um, they now have his notes. He's no longer alive, but they have his notes that he took while he's doing this this thing. And he noted that the the workers seemed to be doing an exemplary job. They were trying really hard to take care of all the babies, but the babies simply could not be consoled. He was like, "It is a madhouse. Babies are just screaming nonstop. Like no matter how much someone tries to love on them, the whole place is just screaming." Like his notes are very descriptive. And then there came a point several days in when everything just quieted down. Just and so his notes say the babies seem to be making adjustments. They seem to be adjusting their new surroundings. They've all calmed down with it, blah, blah. And then there's a point at which he moves closer to, to observe up close. And his notes get really, really creepy. He comments that, that these babies have not adjusted. They're gone. They're checked out. They will not make eye contact. They've given up. They've just literally, it's almost like they're not here. It's, it's really dark and, and creepy, creepy to read. But I think this is also a cautionary tale for us as we strive toward unity. Because there's, there's two types of peace. 
there's there's the, the type of peace that Paul is talking about. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And then there's the type of peace that the orphanage was was experiencing, which is the kind where everybody just gets up and everybody just checks out. Like, and I believe with, with all my guts that we're called to unity with other believers, all believers. But the more we work for that, the more we're going to be tempted to just give up on anything we're passionate about. Just give up on the things that we're convicted by. Give up on the things that we really believe in. And I think that is probably more dangerous than anything. For all of us to just go, oh, unity is the only thing that matters. I'm just going to let go of all this other stuff. That's not, that's not healthy. That's not what we're asking for. The thing that is so beautiful about this passage to me is that Paul gives us the real tools for building unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, grace, peace. It's not about not fighting. Believe me, there are some things right now that we need to be fighting about. There are some things right now in our culture, in our church, that we need to be passionate about. It is not about giving up on those things so that we can all just, let's all just get along. That is not what we're talking about here. We need to be taking some stands. We need to be uh, believing hard for certain things. There are some things right now I think more, more than maybe anything in my adult life we need to take a stand on and really believe in. We most certainly cannot check out like the babies in the orphanage and just, I want unity if I'm going to mellow out. No, that's not what we're asking for. We need to fight for what we believe, but it's all about how we fight. It's all about the way we take a stand. You know, you can fight for unity, unity divisively. You can. We've actually been struggling with that, like, even in the town a little bit. Like, people are like, oh, these people are being so divisive. It makes me want to fight with them. Right? It makes me want to divide from their divisiveness. You can take a stand for unity that is divisive, and that's not healthy either. How we fight is important. We need to stay engaged and continue to fight for what's right and what we believe in, but we do it with humility, gentleness, patience, and grace, and peace. I think if the church could do that, we could change the world. I mean, how do you fight with humility? I mean, this, to me, this, this, this happened when I was reading theology, and I remember, I realized, like, I was reading the writings of some of these theologians from the past that I totally disagreed with, and I could not, on my best day, shape language and thought the way these guys do. I'm like, these guys were geniuses. They were brilliant. And for me to go, yeah, but I know better than him, like, and yeah, there are also brilliant theologians that I fully agree with. I'm not saying, you know, that the, the, the guy who can talk the smartest is automatically right. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying if these issues that we fight over were simple, we would have settled them a long time ago. And just the humility to know, this stuff's complicated. Like, it's hard. Like, I totally understand where you can come to a different... This is what I'm deeply convicted about. But I understand that people have come to other ideas through thought and through prayer and through study, like, just that simple humility can change the way you fight. Understanding that, yeah, although I'm passionate about what I believe, man, they've got some good points that I could listen to as well. Gentleness. There's a point when 
I was so convicted by my theology, I was basically beating Esther to death with it. And, and you know, she was trying to believe that God wanted something better for her. And I was so convicted by the sovereignty of God and, and, and the reward of heaven that I was like, if God saves you, and then, I'm going to use the language I used back then, if God saves you and then pisses down your back the rest of your life, and you die and go to heaven, you still die blessed. Like, yay, you win. Like, he doesn't have to give you anything. And you still die more blessed than most of the world. And she was like, do you not understand that your theology is killing me? And I was like, whoa. Like, good theology should, should like, build you up and make you feel good. Like, how is this? And I had to, I had to learn that I, I was not being gentle. Like, for me to just ram my thoughts and theology down her throat, I would have failed this list. Patience. I, I remember a friend of mine was reading a study, and he got all off and crazy on a, on a deconstruction. Like, well, that's not true. This isn't true. Maybe none of it's true. And he was, and I was talking to another friend of mine who's older than me and, and very mature, and I was like, how do I approach this? He was like, oh, you've got to give him space. This is probably a five-year process. Like, he's deconstructing. This is taking a while to put it back together. Just, he needs to do this. Give him space. He'll be stronger when he comes back. And I was like, five years? I have nothing in my DNA that thinks five years. Like, I want to fix it today. Like, there's no way I can let him go silly for five years. And he was like, dude, you got to have patience. Like, you got to give people space to think and grow. And, and that's a hard thing. When someone comes into church and, and they're excited and passionate about Jesus and they're doing some things that are still totally wrong, we, it is the temptation to attack those things is so strong. And trusting the Holy Spirit to convict them as he wants, you know, speech fit, and that, that I am not the Holy Spirit, that's not my job, takes an incredible amount of patience to go, my job is to love and encourage and build up and strengthen, and the Holy Spirit will do his work. And I have stories of people coming in and just like, you know, man, it's like the Word of God is cutting me. Like, just, that's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit does that. I don't have to do that. Yeah, there are times when the Holy Spirit says, you know, in relationship, in deep relationship, you get to say, hey, I'm worried about you. What's going on here? Is this good for you? Yeah, there's times we do that. But usually we allow the Holy Spirit, we build up and strengthen and encourage. Allow the Holy Spirit to do that. Grace, peace, all of these things. When these become a part of our lives, we find that that we're able to to fight and, and take a stand without doing damage. I love that Paul walks it all the way back there. And I tell you what, you know, I don't know what list you like to use for when you're living the way the Bible tells you to or not, but this one convicts the heck out of me. Like every day. I'll catch myself not being patient. And I'm like, that is not okay. I'm not living like Christ. I need to repent. And that's where the grace of God comes. is so big. That's where the grace of God is so important. Because I tell you what, you can take a list like this and crush yourself. Because it's hard to just decide to live at peace. It's really hard. And, and this, is why, this is why a lot of times I don't pick on particular sins that... that some people pick on because I'm like, if you, any true discussion of sin ought to be so big that it drives you to the cross. Like, if you talk about sin and you walk out of the room feeling okay, you missed it. Like, any conversation about sin ought to make you go, thank you, Jesus, 
for your grace. Because I blew it yet again. And I, and I, and I allowed all the stuff going on in the world to creep in and take my peace again, and that is not okay. So I, I, I'm at your cross again as a sinner, loving you for your grace and how, how loving and, and caring you are. God, I lost my patience again. Thank you for your grace and your cross that you still love me even when I blow it. The things we like to pick on usually are the things we can point at out there. Like, boy, that guy over there, he's just not, not living like a Christian. While we're allowing that to take our peace. <laughs> have you ever done that? you ever been so mad at the way somebody else is living that you let it take your peace? And, and Paul says, no, 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 this is how you live. Which is why we all, all of us, if you can look at that list and say, nailed it, then we need to talk afterwards. Come talk to me. <laughs> Usually this drives us to the cross. And we're like, I need God's grace in my life because I, I can't do it without it. I can't do it without God's help and God's grace. So don't let this list crush you. Just let it drive you back to the cross and worship Jesus for his amazing grace as we, as we try to live like Jesus. So the way I'd love to respond to this message is maybe make a list in your phone. You know, if you're one of those psychos that puts sticky notes on your bathroom mirror, do that. Um, <laughs> but I'd love for you to put this list somewhere and let it start to shape the way you fight. And I'm not asking you not to fight. I'm not asking you not to believe what you believe and are passionate about. Those things are super important, and the church needs you to bring those to the table. Because those, those are important. We're not asking you to wash anything out. I'm saying, let this list start to shape the way we talk about it. Start to shape the way that we, that we fight and take a stand for things together. Don't check out just to get along. That never works. But I've been saying for five weeks that unity is not uniformity. We're not supposed to be the same. Diversity and differences are essential. And the way we accomplish that without losing our unity is right there. Because that is about you. That is about what you can do in your own heart and guts to build unity. I have to, I have to approach things humbly. I have to approach things gently. And, I, and yeah, I, I don't budge on what I believe. I fight for those things. I'm, those things are important. But I do it with humility. I do it with gentleness and patience and grace and peace. Let's go to the table.